ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. At international rugby matches, you'll see the Australian team come out and the guys will mumble their way through Advance Australia Fair. But when it's the Fijian team's turn to sing, they come out with something like this. And it has this electrifying effect on the crowd and on viewers at home as we watch these men honour each other, their nation and their God with their heads raised up to the sky. All this week, Sarah and I are bringing you conversations from the Pacific, from our island neighbours, where singing is completely interwoven into everyday life. And... Like just about everyone else in Fiji, Waisa Vulakoro grew up surrounded by music. Waisa sang at home on the tiny island she grew up on with her 14 brothers and sisters. Waisa sang at church where her father was the choir master and she put on many performances in the classroom because Waisa always absolutely knew she wanted to be a star. And so at 13 years old, Lysa set off on her own for the mainland on a boat that arrived in Suva, the capital, at dawn. Now, all these years later, Lysa has become a star in Fiji and across the region. Lysa is the acknowledged queen of Vunde music, a style of music that combines traditional Fijian singing with disco and reggae and R&B. Lysa is a much-loved figure here in Fiji. And so when she spoke out against the military coup of 2006, she became a marked figure by the coup leaders. I spoke with Lysa just before she was about to go on stage on a rainy evening in Suva. Hello, Lysa Bula. Bula Richard. Does just about everyone sing in Fiji, Lysa? Yes, it's actually uh, part of our culture, part of our tradition, singing. So, you know, we sing about everything. It started from our chanting and our meke, which is our dancing, traditional dancing. And the way we present our traditional ceremonies, some things are chanted, are sung, some things are just spoken. So singing was, is a very much big part of a traditional village and Fijian setup. That's members of your extended family of all ages singing together on your home island of Yathata in Fiji. Do people in Fiji learn to sing harmony at a really early age? Uh, we never learned. It just happened. <laughs> I, I never really uh, remember that I, was, I ever learned in the village. When you learned how to talk, you know your harmony line. And you know in your village setup, 
whoever in your family are singing, everybody just takes their part. It's not something that we learn, it's natural, I think. What makes the Fijian voice distinctive? Because I'm hearing something there, but I can't quite pick what it is that makes Fijian singing so distinctive. I, I think, I believe that every race, every ethnic group have their own distinct sound. It's actually in the tone, the tone that is used. Like, for an example, like the Indian singers, they use a lot of nasal sound. Yeah, combined with maybe a throat and chest, a little bit of chest and some head voice. So with the Fijians, is mainly a lot of chest, I think a combination of diaphragm, chest and head voice. So each ethnic group, I know they have their own distinct sounds. It seems to me, I might be wrong about this, but I, when I hear it, I've, when I've walked past a, a Pacific Island church in Australia and I hear singing, that the middle note in the chord, the, the major third or the minor third, seems a little bit sharp, which makes my, my scalp tingle. It makes my hair stand on end because it's, it sounds kind of exciting. Is there anything in that, do you think? Um, I think it derives from our, mainly from our chanting, uh, the tone that we use for chanting and for singing our traditional dance songs. I think it derives from that, and we carry that with us in any kind of setting in the world that, that still carries. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm proud of that. And, uh, in, and like with my music, I try to incorporate all that together with a modern disco, reggae, some R&B, all mixed up. We often hear the communal singing, but do people just sing when they're going about the normal business of island life, just sing with everyday tasks? Yes, yes. In everything we do, there is a chant. We go fishing, there is a special chant for fishing to bring the fish up on the water so that you can catch it. We go out somewhere else in the farm and you go and do another chant. The chanting is involved in all our everyday life. Like I said, you grew up on this little island, Yathata. What does that island look like for people who've never been there before? Uh, it's very beautiful, pristine, with only one village and about maybe 300 people on it. How big was your family? Big enough to make a mighty noise when you sang together? My family, the children will make up two sevens a side team. <laughs> <laughs> was that the idea when they were planning the family? I'm not sure. There was no television. That's the problem in those days. So who led the singing at home when you were little? My dad. My dad was a choir master in the church. So everybody grew up singing in school, in church, at home. So we have a choir in the Sunday school and choir at church. So my, my dad was the choir master. And so we inherited that from him. My mom also sang soprano, beautiful soprano. So everybody just sing. It's, there's no, you don't think about it. It's just there. When you've got a large family, does singing together keep the peace between people in the family? Yes, 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 yes. Growing up in the village, in our big family, it's very peaceful. It was very peaceful, unlike the ones when you see growing up in the city because they worried too much about money and how to feed the family. I see that the big difference in the island, there's always plenty to eat. 
because we grew everything and we catch everything we eat from the sea. We raise animals like pigs and chickens. Yeah, so life was much better and easier and you don't have to worry about money. So growing up as a little girl in this family, in this place that seems like paradise, it looks like paradise, it looks very beautiful, uh, peaceful and prosperous. When did you decide you wanted to become a professional singer, Lisa? When I started the school, I think when I learned how to speak English, because I used to listen to the... We had the only radio on the island. My father bought a radio. So every afternoon and every evening, the whole village would come and listen to the radio. So my home would be full. My dad would turn on the radio so everybody can listen, the only first radio. So during church service, when everybody's at church, because we are not allowed to get away from... We have to be in church. I used to sneak out and take the radio from my dad's room to the kitchen side, like a little thatched house we have on the side of our house, and go and listen to the program, the English program. I was very interested in English programs, not so much in the Fijian program, because the English songs was coming on that. And I used to hear Elvis Presley, Skeeter Davis, um, you know, you name it, all the old singers used to be singing on the radio. And I used to try to write when I learned how to write, start to write the song lyrics and sing along with them, you know. So what was your ambition then? I wanted to become a star. Did you know what that meant? Not really, <laughs> except the star was somewhere up there. That's where I'm going because my island was so small. I wanted to go to a bigger island and to be, see a bigger star there. So when I used to hear the radio, they talk about the stars. I used to imagine in my head, I'm the star, I'm going there, I'm going to the star, I'm going to be a famous singer one day. And where would you go to daydream about that on that little island? I would go either to the beach or sometimes I would sit in front of the porch and my father and, and cousins and, and them will be playing cricket on the lawn and I would see the sun setting over the mountain, that was my moment of dream. And I would watch the sun setting over the mountain and I'm thinking, this island is too small for me. I'm going to the big island to be a big star. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad never understood. So when people, kids were asking school, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And everybody said, I wanna be a teacher, I wanna be a nurse, I wanna be a doctor. Lisa? I want to be a star. Oh, what's that? I want to be a singer. That's what they call them. The singers are stars and they're famous. So my dad never understood. In, in Fiji, he would say, Nathabana star. What is a star? I said, Nathabana star. So I would, I would say those things, you know. So when did you get to get, make that trip to the mainland, to Suva in the big island? Yeah, so I bothered my dad. And I bothered him. I said, you need to send me to the main island because I was very, what do you call it in English, like persistent. I would be persistent to irritate everybody. So that's the way I am still now. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very persistent with him. I said, send me to the island. So I think he got fed up of me. So he sent me on that boat by myself. And how old were you? I was 13 years old. 13 years old on a boat? 16 hours ride. Through rough seas? Rough seas, up and down. I'd sit on top and the boat would go like this and disappear in the waves and come back up. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you see then when the boat came into Suva and you could see the big city Suva for the first time? The boat came in, it was dawn. 
was the daylight was just breaking and was still dark and I could see all the city lights of the city and I was because we don't have that in my island we have like benzene light and and uh, hurricane lamps torches nothing like this and I was looking oh my goodness this is my life these lights are so gorgeous so it was like New York or something yes so when I traveled through my music when I'm in New York City or London or wherever I am, I would ask my friends to drive around the cities in the night so I can just look at the city lights or San Francisco, all these places, you know. So where did you go to live in Suva once you came? When I came to Suva, uh, my big sister was with her first partner, husband. That's the one my dad told the crew. Somebody will be waiting at the wharf. This is my daughter. Somebody is waiting at the wharf. So she will look after her. So when I came to the wharf, my sister was standing there, my older sister. So I got off and then I went with her to her house. And then they organized the school for me to attend. But when I first arrived, I didn't have uniform. So I had to borrow from my cousin's children and didn't have a school bag. So I had to use plastic bag and no shoes. And I'll go went to school. But it to me was nothing. I'm in the city now. I'm going to go for my dream. I didn't care. I didn't have all these things. Borrowed school uniform, no shoes. No shoes, And you were going to be bag. a star. Yes. Everything. So I just, I was happy I was in the city. How did you show them you were going to be a star once you did go to school? Yes, I was never shy. Between classes, the teachers would change classrooms. I would say, hey, come on, everybody, look at me. I'm Diana Ross. So I would get in front of the class and I would sing a song by Diana Ross. And I said, make sure, before I sing, make sure everybody claps after I finish the song. So they all clap. And sometimes I get into trouble while they're still clapping. That other teacher would walk in, what's happening here? (laughs) And there was always the uh, talent quests. So I was taking myself to all the different talent quests and I would be singing there. But I was always trying to get everybody to hear me. But no one could afford to pay my school fees. Those days, school fees, you have to pay. And uh, my sister wasn't working, only her husband was working, but like they would sometimes fight and all this, and I would walk to school and no lunches and all these things. There's all things that came along with that. So they had a family meeting because I failed just a few points in my exam when I was in Form 5, and they said, you can't go back to school, now you have to go and look for a job because no one can afford to pay for you. So I really cried and I cried, I wanted to go to school, just let me do one more, repeat this class, and I'm gonna get it. So they didn't, so okay, the first job I found was, uh, is to be a tea girl in, uh, it's called Cup Track, it's a hardware store. A hardware store? Yeah. Serving, like, tea? Yeah, making for, tea, making tea and serving, people. I was happy. And like with me, I'm happy to do anything. That's my personality. I, I'm never ashamed to, to do anything. So long as I know there's some benefit for me there, I'm going to get paid and I'm happy. So my second job was at Fiji Times doing Fiji Sixes lottery, uh, just getting the vouchers and putting the money here, vouchers here in the office. So when did you get your first singing job on a stage in front of customers? Okay. An opening came from this hotel right here. It was called the Travel Lodge. Right, the in Travel Lodge. In this room where we are right now. Right, the room we're sitting in. Yeah, room right now. This is where you got your first this break. My first, no, my first time on stage. I mean, 
in a in in a hotel setting. We haven't planned it like this, Lisa. No, Are you um, telling us you got I'm your sure first you it. <laughs> big break in this very room we're sitting in? Yeah. Where the, the, the manager would say, I would tell the band, look, I can sing. Can I come and hold the microphone? So I would jump up on stage and I say this, this song and they would find my key and I would sing. And then the manager who was then here, I still remember him because he was the one that said, hey, put down your tray, get on stage. So I would sing with the boys and then sometimes they would put, uh, like there's a birthday party in the room. I have to go and pin the flowers to the lady or whoever, and then I would sing with the boys, They do the string around, and then go back on stage. This is like a real place where I can sing and everybody going to be clapping, and, and I was just so happy. What kind of music did you want to sing in those days? In those days, I like all the English songs. Rock and roll. Rock and roll, country and western. I liked Olivia Newton-John, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick. Aretha Franklin, all these singers, I used to love them. And some like Billie Holiday, Shelley Bessie. So you went from there to the Hyatt Regency, which is a fancier hotel. Yes. And you joined the band there. Nostradamus. I just brought myself there and I asked the owner of the band, I want to sing. I want an audition. So he said, okay, come. So he put me on stage and I did a song and then he said, oh, well, I think we hire you now. You're going to work here for five nights a week. We will show you where you're going to live, a little room I'm going to share with a lead singer. There was a lead singer female at the time, Melian Dimuri, and I was to be her backup. Oh, how did she like you sharing her room with her? I think she had no choice in those days. Yeah. She wasn't a diva about that then? No. Uh, she was a bit of a diva, <laughs> but I idolised her and that's why it worked, you know. And what was it like working with professional musicians? It was hard. Really play? It was hard. I really came from nowhere. I've never learnt. Nobody ever taught me except what I learned from home and church and uh, brothers and sisters. And then when I went into the, the room... And I used to tell them, okay, sing this song. So I would learn the lyrics and I would jump up on stage and start singing. And then maybe some places I would be going flat and all the band boys, they're so cruel, they'll be going flat, flat. Come on, so flat, sing properly. On stage? They're on stage, they'll be calling from the back right. and the tourists will be sitting there. So they, I would be really upset. And so at the end of that song, I'd run outside the veranda and go and have a big cry cry, 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 and then come back. Okay, next song. <laughs> <laughs> Was it worth it? Did you, did you mind being scolded like that in the end? Oh, no, no. I think all these things that I came through, it helped me, help mould who I am now. Did it make you a better singer? It made me a better, better character and a better, stronger person. So 21 years old, you're singing with this band. You're becoming a star in Suva like you'd always wanted to. Then what happened to derail your career at 21, Lisa? Okay, I got pregnant. I got pregnant. And uh, so it's, I think that's always a challenge with, uh, with female singers, especially in the Melanesian culture. As soon as you get pregnant, the old man will say, you can't sing, stay home, look after the baby. Stay home barefoot and pregnant. That's what we are literally supposed to be. So I was home and so I said, okay, I better find a job because I'm so used to supporting myself. And 
I can't be staying home. And the father of my son was not working as well because his dream was to become a captain on the airline. So he's had his private license, but he hasn't had his commercial license. So his dream was ongoing and he still wanted to go and study to become a real pilot. But you had to bring the money in in the meantime. In the meantime, I'm the one bringing the money in. So I had to work for tour companies. In my singing job at the Hyatt was $40 a week. I have to sing five nights a week. I was happy that I just got a job. Wow, $40 is a bonus. I, like, I didn't even care if they paid me or not. I was just happy for the opportunity. So when I went to do my tour company job, it was much better money. Did you think you might give up singing at that point? Oh, no. Never, ever occurred in my head that one day I will give up singing. No, because all these jobs is just filling in the gap. I'm still going for my singing job. How did you get back on stage again? Well, my son's father. I said, look, I want to sing again. And he said, if you sing again, we will split up. So when he went away and got his pilot's license, and then when he came back, I was ready to sing. So I said to him, I think we should split up because I want to sing. And then there was my son that we need to take care of. But his parents lived there too, his old parents, and they wanted to take care of my son, which was very honorable of them. And I was so grateful. I'm always grateful to them. So they took care of my son, and I moved to Nandi as a singer. What did the tour company think of you leaving them to become a singer? Oh, they were very upset. So my first night at the, when I went for audition at the region of Fiji, they were sitting there to come and watch me. And they were clapping. They came up after the end of the night and said, very good singer, but please, we still offer you to come back and work for us. We'll increase your money. We will raise your pay. Don't go. So I said, no, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. But this is what I love to do. I've got this opportunity. I'm not going to leave. So these days you specialize in Wunde. Yes. Tell me about this style of music. Well, Wunde literally translates... Wunde is floating on water, floating on water. So my description of that, when I go out, I tell everybody, when you hear my music, your body should be relaxed like you're floating on water. (laughs) But Wunde is what we call in our traditional dances, you know, like... You know, Wunde, Wunde means floating on water and means get up and move your body, you know, move your body, relax your body, move your body, like you're floating. <laughs> and the style mixes, the new styles of music, like R&B and disco and country and rock and roll, with the traditional style. Yes. What's the traditional element in The traditional Wunde? themes are the beats, and sometimes in the song we do some chanting as well. And just, you know, the, the beat like disco and rock and some reggae, so we can combine them like that. But my real love in music is jazz and blues and standards, R&B. That's the love of my heart for music. But I had to take Wunde because in Fiji, they don't understand. If I want to become famous in this country, I've got to do something the masses love. So I decided to write my own wounds. 
one of your most popular tracks, Lisa, Bitu Kavoro, one of the songs that made you a big star in Fiji. So your dream came true. You were a famous singer, not just in Fiji, but across the Pacific region. And then in the 1990s, you got into rugby, serious rugby. Yes. I came back from one of my tours in America and I had put on weight. And, you know, I'm very conscious about my body and how I look. If I know I put on one kilo, I will be not eating for a few days, you know, like that, that fanatic. So I was living near the park and one of my cousins who was playing in the Fiji team, girl at the time, she was training every day. And I said, listen, I'll come and train with you girls because I need to lose some weight. Yeah, come. So I went and trained with them and I started playing professional with them after training and I, I was doing well according to the coach. So we played rugby sevens, tens, and then the news came that they're looking to form a Fiji women's league team. So we were still training, training, training. Next thing, I got picked in the team. <laughs> and I said, wow, you, I got picked. It was amazing. I was shocked, but I got picked because I was running very fast, you know, the time I was fit running faster than most girls younger than me. I was in my 30s already. Actually, I was 36, 37. Wow, taking up serious rugby at yeah, that age. at that age. Fantastic. <laughs> Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were talking about how your career was going great as a singer, then you decided to lose some weight by playing rugby, and then you were about to get picked for the Fiji National Women's Rugby Team. Did you get to play any big matches? No, because every time... A visiting team would come to play with our team. I'd be touring somewhere else with my music. So I missed all the, the main games. Music or rugby? Music or rugby? Music's always going to win? Music's always going to win. I can at least say in my CV, I played rugby for Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> 2006, Fiji was in the news all over the world. There was a military coup that deposed the elected government of the day. How did you get caught up in that, Lisa? Well, you know me, I'm very vocal. I'm very political. I believe that it's my responsibility as an established artist to speak out when I see something is wrong. And I still do it today. And so when uh, they took over, they had the coup and, and deposed our then elected prime minister, Mr. Ngarase. I went to Mr. Ngarase's house with a whole lot of people to support him including my ex-husband, he came too. So we went and sat around, sang songs with the choir, St. Henry Church Choir, and all the media was coming around, saw me there, they came, took, you know, tried to get my, my interview. So I was telling them, this is wrong. I even told the soldiers off, go home, what are you doing here with your guns? You know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is the elected government that you've just done this thing to, and this is wrong. So I was like that the whole time. And so they were calling me up and warning me at my home. Who was they? The uh, military 
the military. The military. What kind of phone calls were they making? Oh, they're saying, you better be quiet, shut up, you shut up, you shouldn't be talking, you know. We don't like you to talk, you just be quiet. And I was getting phone calls that they will be coming to pick me up. Did they say what might happen if yeah. you kept going? If you keep going, we'll come and pick you up. And then I said, no, you can't stop me because what you're doing, you know, in your heart is wrong. You guys should stop this. And then they came home in the middle of the night and came and took me from my home. They came in, in the middle of the night? They yeah. woke you up? Were you asleep? No, I was still awake. My ex-husband was with me and my big brother. I heard the trucks pulling up. And what do you remember of them coming to your home? What happened? They came in two uh, trucks, like two um, twin caps. And I was in the room. And did they bash on the door? No, no, no. We had big dogs. They couldn't get out of the car. They were scared of the dogs. <laughs> so I was sitting inside the house. And my, my brother and my ex-husband came to meet them at the door and stopped the dogs from biting them. And what did they say to your ex-husband and your brother? They said... Uh, Where's Lisa? Oh, she's in the room. We want to talk to her because we want to take her up to the camp for an interview. And so what did you do? So in the room, I wrote out a list of all the people that my ex-husband should ring should I not come out of there. So I left all the UN contacts, the embassy's contacts, all the women's rights movement's contacts. So I wrote a long list and I gave it to my husband before I came out to meet them. I said, you hold, hold on to this. If I don't come out from there, you call, make a call all these people. So they arrested you? Yeah, they took and, me. And no, no, they didn't arrest me. They took me for an interview. Yeah. Interview. Yeah, but uh, it's arresting, isn't it, yes. really, under, under, yes. uh, under, under the circumstances yeah. there. Where did they take you? They took me up to the military camp. And uh, so... The barracks? The barracks. And I was expecting to have an interview, but at the same time, I was expecting anything. So I had put on my canvas, my running shoes, and remember, I was very fit too at the time. Well, so you might run away. <laughs> no, I know I was prepared, whatever they're going to do to me. So I had my running shoes, my tracksuit, jumper. And what happened when you got to the barracks for your interview? So as soon as they, I got off, one big guy came with handcuffs, handcuffed me, and took me to the cell and turned off all the lights. How frightened were you, Lisa? No, I was never frightened. Really? I, uh, no. I was, you know, I'm, I was never scared. I was sitting there waiting for them. They're going to come and take me for interview. So. How long did they leave you in the dark in handcuffs? Well, they just trying to intimidate me. Yeah. They left me there for maybe 20 minutes. So I was doing push-ups on the floor. You know, so after about 20 minutes, I heard these women swearing and kicking the, the cell door. Where is this bitch? You know, excuse me, excuse my language. Where is this F bitch? Where is she? Where is she? And they looked. They couldn't find me because I was on the floor doing my press up. It's dark. <laughs> and then they said, there she is. Get up. So I got up. I came out. Yes. And they started cursing and swearing, the women. And the men were yelling from the other side and they were interrogating me. So women soldiers had grabbed well, you? No, no, the, the, the men took me in the cell, locked me up. The women's soldiers were sent to come and interrogate me. Were any of them scared of you? 
Because you're a very well-known person here. You have friends all over the world. You had that list of names. Did you get a feeling that some of those soldiers, male or female, were a little frightened of you? They kind of feel sorry for me, in a way. I can see it in their eyes, but I know they have to do their job. They have been ordered to do this. And I see some of them were like, like this, you know. Oh, like saying I'm sorry behind yeah, I'm their sorry, eyes? Yeah, I'm sorry, but, you know, like this. So where did they take you then? Well, from there, they tell me, okay, you got to go outside and do your run. Do the, like the marathon right around this place. Go down there, come back a few kilometers. Why? And I don't know. So one guy had to run with me and, uh, okay, every few kilometers, or a few miles, they tell me to do the push-ups. And then they'd kick me in the butt and hit me in the head. Oh. And, you know, not much, not just kind of lightly, come on, do this, do this, you know, like intimidating. So I would do that, get up, run again, and then they would change. One would stop, another one would follow. So they were probably thinking I was going to knock out. No, but I kept on running. So I even ran faster than the girl they said. Because you were playing rugby and you were I super was fit. Playing, yes, super fit. <laughs> what did they want from you? They wanted me to shut up. So they didn't want names? They didn't want... They just wanted me to shut up. To shut because up. I refused to shut up. I kept talking. I wrote a poem, which the Fiji Times published in those days, about the coup. The coup. So... And did you agree or did you just say nothing? What did you do when they told you to shut up? I said, I can't. I keep talking. They can't shut me up. I have my mouth. I'll keep on talking. The the night before I went, I was taken up. A few of my friends were taken up. They were human rights fighters. So they were beaten up really bad. and, and And then they were telling me, what we did to you tonight is not as bad as what we did to the other ones last night. This is what they were telling me, like they were proud of it. And like I was lucky. That's what they were trying to tell me. I said, you know, but you know what you're doing is wrong. And so what happened next? Oh, after I did the run around, they came, they took me in the back. It was so dark. I couldn't see anybody's faces because it's dark. And they tell me to crawl and all the men are lined up like this, I have to kiss everybody's boots. So kiss their boots. And, uh, and then after that, they bring me back to the cell. Oh, so that's pathetic. Yeah. Isn't it pathetic it is that pathetic. they wanted you to do that? It's supposed to break you. It's not going to break you doing no, that. Nothing will ever break me, nothing. So they took me back inside. And at this time, the girls, again, the two girls, and then the girls was asking me all kinds of questions and swearing and swearing. The swearing was carrying on. And then she said, you have to strip. Take off your clothes. I said, why? Just take off your clothes. So I took off my jumper, took off my shirt, and I took off my pants one by one. And they said, take the other one. So I take off. And then I'm left with my bra and underwear. And just so happened that night I wore my matching underwear and bra (laughs) before I left. So I'll tell you why I'm mentioning this, because I've never given this kind of interview before, you know. This is the first time. Is it R18 or what? You can say exactly what you want. No, it's not. No, it's, 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 you're free to say whatever you like. Oh, good. Thank you, Richard. And then they stripped me. And then the, the captain, girl who was commanding, the younger girl, and they tell me to, when I was in my underwear and bra, I put my hand, to put my hand on the wall like this. And then the girl tried to pull my bra down on my, 
And I just turned around and I said, you just watch it. If you touch me again, I'm going to punch you. I just did that. And she went like that. I was really angry and I was ready to even just give her a good one. Did she leave you alone after that? Yeah, she did. They left me alone. Okay, okay, sad. So they tell me to put on my clothes again and go outside. When I went outside, there was like 30 men all standing there in a circle. It was dark and raining a bit. So they tell me to sit on the ground in the middle. And so their leader standing there and said, okay, now it's time for anybody want to say something to Lysa. So he was going, um... Because in one of my interviews, I likened Bani Marama. This is Commodore Frank Bani Marana, the yes, leader of the yes. coup. I likened Bani Marama as the wannabe Idi Amin of the Pacific. <laughs> so they heard that, and the guy that was talking didn't even know about who Idi Amin was. So he was going, So, what's that guy's name in Fijian? What's that guy's name? Damin. What Damin? Damin. And then another one, I could hear the other one from the back. It's Idi Amin. And Idi Amin, he starts swearing at me, you know, and everybody started laughing. I wanted to laugh so hard because it's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and so they tell me, okay, this was like close to 4 a.m. in the morning or 5 a.m. It was starting to get light. And they said, when you live here, you're not allowed to say anything about what happened in this place. And here we are talking about it on the radio. No, I walked out and I told everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I had a luncheon that day with my ex-husband and I told the whole group in this big room about what has happened to me. So everybody was like, oh. I had already booked to go to America on that night and they tried to stop me. All the people that went the day before me, they were stopped. They took their passports and so I talked to my brother. My younger brother was in the army in Nandi airport. So I said to him, you tell those people to let me go. If they don't let me go, I'll keep on talking. So my brother said, oh man, just let my sister go, please, because I know my sister, she won't shut up. <laughs> so they let me go. And I was away for three months in America. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. When you kiss me, fever when you hold me tight. Fever in the morning, fever right through the night. Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the Give me fever, you give me fever. When you kiss me, fever when you hold me tight. Fever, in the morning, fever all through the night. It's a pretty fab disco version of the old Peggy Lee song, Fever. So Lisa, tell me what happened when you got back from America. The day I got back, the day I got pregnant, because I was away for three months. My ex-husband was here alone. So, yeah. So you're happy to see each other? Yeah, we were building our house. Yes. and, and uh, Yes, of course. 
and why not? It's my, you know, we missed each other so much. And so I got pregnant. And I was already 46 years old. I already had two big sons. They're 10 years apart. So now the big one is 40, second one is 30, and then I have a 15-year-old. That's the one I'm looking after. So when I got pregnant, I gave birth and I got sick. I got seizures in my sleep. Having seizures in your yes, sleep? Yes, yes. So they took me to the hospital and had a CT scan. And then they found the growth, the tumour on my brain. So they said, I, I have to go for an operation. But I didn't want anyone to know. All the, our music family came to visit us before we went to Perth. And they wanted to do a fundraiser if I needed money. And my husband was, ex-husband was worrying because we didn't have money for it, to pay for it. And I said, don't worry, God will provide. I had faith. So the musicians came, wanted to do a fundraiser. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want anyone to know. Don't make any fundraising. Don't worry, we are just going. And then my ex-husband decided to take a loan from his bank to pay for me. He was very kind to me at the time, and I am always grateful for that. So off we went to Perth. And then the neurosurgeon told me to have an MRI scan, and they found this tumour was really big. So now that must have frightened you. No. Oh, come on. Really? Not really. I just, you know, in my heart, I said, what? This is the things that only happen to other people. I can't believe it was happening to me. So the neurosurgeon, he said, this thing is very big. I have to operate on you next week. And then my ex-husband was still worrying. While he was still worrying, his boss called Dr. Robin Mitchell from Fiji. He was the with the Oceania Olympics Committee. And so he said, look, don't worry. The islands, countries are putting in to pay for license operation. Because when he used to travel to do his sports, they used to say, can you bring Lysa along to fundraise for our soccer team in the Solomons, netball team in Cook Islands? So I was tagging along with him and I used to do this free fundraiser for all these sporting bodies. So all these people decided to put in and pay for me. See how one good turn comes back? Yeah. I said, have faith. We have a God. I always had faith. What did the neurosurgeon tell you about the tumour and the connection maybe to rugby? Oh, yeah, well, he said, could have been an old injury that was sitting there for years. And I remember very well when I got tackled very badly at one time, I had the pain in my head and here for a long time and I didn't go and get help. So he said, could have been that tumor was there, it, the real growth from that tackle, and then when you had the baby so late in your life, your body was fighting so hard to keep the baby safe and healthy, and something else gave up. So the growth accelerated. That's his explanation. But he said, nobody really knows the causes of cancer, but he thought that that could have been in the case, in my case. How about music in Fiji today, Lisa? Is it still very important to daily life, singing and music? Oh yes, yes, more so than ever before. 
Are traditional styles disappearing as modern music comes into Fiji more and more? Uh, a lot of the young people are not really knowing it anymore. And what are they missing out on when they don't have that? They're missing out on, uh, you know, like I find that the, the, the modern songs now are a lot of uh, copies, just copying the Fijian lyrics, copying the, the melodies and the style of the modern times now. Like in our days, we had to be, I think ours was like more creative. And they don't do wundes anymore, like, like us. Only a few groups, few groups are still doing it. And when the few groups are doing the wunde, it's very well loved and liked. But the new style is different. It's lovely for the young ears. They love it because it's their style now, it's modern. But I've been through here for over 40 years new styles come in and go they don't last very long they come in and a trend everybody loves it and then they forget but the wounded still stays the mainstream wounded like we do as soon as you start that everyone is up dancing the young and the old i mean so all those years ago that little girl on that little island who wanted to be a star before she even really knew what, what a star meant. was what it <laughs> meant i'm speaking to you in suva today Everyone knows you here. You're famous in all the islands around the area. You're known in parts of Australia too. Do you feel like you've succeeded in that? Uh, do you feel content with how things, how your life has unfolded like that? No, I'm never contented. I'm always pushing it. I want to go for it. I want to go for it. I still want to go to be known in the world. And I know I'm going there. I still have not going to rest. I've got bookings right up till New Year. This whole month I'm booked out. It wasn't easy to get the time to interview you today. No, I'm very, very busy. busy. I'm very busy. <laughs> I had to put off some of my other appointments to come here. So it's a board meeting today and I had to excuse myself to come to meet you guys. We're very honoured you did so. Lisa. Oh, thank it's you. been such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you. And Richard. hearing about your amazing life. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I hope you'll come outside and listen to my band sing. My word, I will. <laughs> my word, I will.
That's Lysa Vulakoro with one of her own songs, Nachule Nihanahana, which means the fish of Hanahana Village. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Bobby McCumber, the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn how to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.